Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also find us on Facebook as well. Just look for, yes, Political Beats. Subscribe to our feed. We ask you to for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or elsewhere. Plus, right there at nationalreview.com. Click on podcast to find all the fun NR shows. Listen, leave reviews where possible. Help others find the show. We also direct you to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash political beats, where you can support us, help the show stay ad free. We invite you to subscribe at entry level for uh, support and voting privileges here and there, mid level for early access to all of our episodes and all of them at a higher audio quality. And our upper level best friends, you get the early access, the higher audio quality. Monthly exclusive content shows, remastered episodes. We just put out the two parts of the Rolling Stones episodes we did, what, four years ago at this point? They are remastered and ready for your listening pleasure. Playlists and much more. That's all at patreon.com slash political beats. Now to the part of the program where we thank some of our Patreon supporters individually and specifically. Thanks to Jim Dedman, also Richard Kikuchi. Paul Ritchie, Norman Fleischer, Chuck Turner, Perry Young, Barton Vaughn, David Propson, John Presnall, Stephen Carl, Mike Morrison, and Sean Bible. Thank you specifically and all of our Patreon supporters. You can be one to patreon.com slash political beats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always is Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I gotta say, Scott, as a natural brunette, I was a little bit wary of changing my looks. But I don't know. I just got seized with a bit of a fever, broke out the peroxide bottle, and I, I'm gonna tell you, I, I love being a platinum blonde. You look good, especially the eyeshadow. I, you know, my wife, my wife wanted me to just go with frosted tips, but I, I said no. My, why bother? Go the whole way, right? It's, whole it's not the guys. '90s anymore. Yeah. At Esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff. Our guest on today's program is the managing editor of Modern Age, and she joins us to talk about well, Blondie. Hannah Rowan is our guest on today's program. Hannah, thanks so much for joining joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about Blondie. Let's uh, let's be excited to talk a little bit about you first. Tell us uh, what you do at Modern Age, where people can find it, and what else you've been doing in these couple of years inside the political ecosystem. Sure. So as you said, I am managing editor at Modern Age, uh, which is connected to published by uh, ISI. And I um, keep the trains running there and uh, do some freelance writing, um, that sort of thing in my free time. Um, I graduated from Hillsdale, uh, feels like a long time ago now, 2018. Um, and after that, spent some time in New York at the New Criterion and then uh, moved to D.C., to work at the American Spectator and then uh, where I am today. Um, so uh, that's that's me. That's you in a nutshell. And we will do more than talk about Blondie in a nutshell. They are our featured band today. Jeff has been chomping at the bit for quite a long time to talk about Blondie. We have finally found our guest in Hannah Rowan. Hannah, the floor is yours to tell us why you love Blondie, how you found out about them, and why other people should care about this music. So I'll start early. Uh, when I was a kid, 
I had three little sisters and the task on Saturdays was folding laundry. And this is the task we didn't relish, but it also led to my first memories of listening to music. Um, we had a few CDs and one of our favorites was not Blondie. Uh, it was Drew's famous Luau party music uh, from 1996 <laughs> by the hit band, The Hit Crew. Uh, you may have heard of them, probably not. Uh, there was a song on the on that album though that always devolved into dance parties and that song was the tide is high um it was not the blondie version um it's originally a song by the paragons that the luau party dance band also covered <laughs> and um i later discovered when i heard blondie my you know impeccable taste in music having been formed by true's famous luau party music that oh this is blondie and blondie knows what they're doing with this song better than they included. So after that, you know, uh, Blondie was very much just in the water uh, just as I grew up listening to, you know, the top 40 radio station um, and all of that, you know, hits of 80s, 90s and today. So the singles, you know, it seems like one way or another was on every other car commercial um, when I was watching TV growing up. somewhat recently in 2019 when I was assigned to write a review of Debbie Debbie Harry's new memoir, Face It, which was coming out at the time. Uh, Dominic Green, who has also been um, on at least one of your episodes of Political Beats, uh, assigned me to review uh, Face It. Um, I don't know why I wasn't that blonde and my hair was very short um, and I looked nothing like Debbie Perry at the time, but uh, I read the book and um, found that, you know, oh, I, I know all these, uh, I know more of Lonnie's music um, than I thought I did. And then, of course, as you're going through a book that has all these, you know, images of uh, Debbie Harry, and you're learning about how she used her image um, to really fuel uh, the band um, and make them uh, a celebrity. Um, I just developed a really big crush on her, and I'm sure I'm the first person to say that. Um, she had uh, definitely what? not the first. I think there will be two <laughs> others who will say the same. <laughs> At least three of us in the world, and they're all in this room. Uh, yeah, she really had. I ran across this term uh, reading the Wall Street Journal actually this weekend in a review of 
uh, Madonna, which we'll probably talk about the connections with Blondie later, uh, the reviewer calls it it. She had it. You know, she had that star power that um, really made her irresistible. You know, she was a gorgeous woman. She had the blonde hair or whatever. But beyond that, she just had this charisma, this talent, um, and this, like, very punk energy where she she played all these different roles um in in her songs throughout the albums and you can see this develop especially in the early albums um and people really couldn't look away she said that one of her big goals um in you know what she was doing uh with her music was just bringing dance back to rock music because people had gotten very you know uh doctrinaire she said after like fm radio um came on and um she was in love with donna summer and disco and that wasn't really done at the time um but that for her was like the was a was a the punk spirit really only talking about Debbie Harry and how cool and beautiful she is. The rest of the band um, is also very, very versatile. Um, there are a couple members that come in and out that are like, incredible songwriters, um, a great uh, guitar player, just two, um, and uh, a great drummer in, in Klenberg as well. But they're so versatile, and I think that they're able to play with all of the genres that they do uh, because... Debbie Harry just has the the charisma and the just the central starring role um, that is you know the magnet that that pulls everything together. Um, you know the they had really we're going to be talking about a short discography today. It it goes a lot longer past the, a break their breakup in the eighties, um, but really they had four or so just really strong albums in the in the late seventies um, that that just show that that Debbie Harry has it and we all want to we still all want to be a platinum blonde uh after Blondie. As we talk about Blondie's music today, it's going to be impossible in many ways to separate it from the visual element of the band. And the visual element of the band is what drew me in. And I don't just mean Debbie Harry's looks, although it doesn't hurt. There are there are so many aspects of Blondie that are that are dominated by the visual. You think about the cover of Parallel Lines, the very stark black and white with Debbie in the middle. I think about the the cover of uh, Auto American, which I think my library had, and Jeff and I have talked often. That's where we found most of our music growing up. Is hey, that's what the library had. 
I think they had Audible American. And that picture of the band on, you know, on the top of the tall building on the ledge and the city beneath, like that image always has stuck with me. And the, the striking sort of black and white uh, lighted photography that so many band shots have from that late 70s era. And yes, of course, uh, the beauty and elegance uh, of Debbie Harry. All of that comes together. And, and they were one of the first bands to understand and realize the visual importance of video in their music. Um, there are videos for every song on a few of these albums that are included with the reissues and, and bonus discs of, of these albums. So that visual element is so important to the band. And I don't want to say it overshadows the music, but they had a, they had a number of number one songs and very popular albums. And yet, digging back into the discography from that first era, there are still surprises. And I, I, the, the, the amount of road this band covers from their debut in 1976 through Auto American, and if you extend it to The Hunter in 82, that's six years. Uh, and that first album didn't sell anything at all. And so you, you, you begin to crunch that down into five years, four years. And where they started and what they went through and where they ended, there's a lot of little nooks and crannies along the way. interesting side you know side roads that the band takes and follows for a while and comes back and tries something else and a couple of times on albums you'll hear oh this is the seed of what was going to become this in the future so they had these thoughts of how the music was going to be put together and how they were going to present it visually and that's i think a very interesting aspect of the band certainly the front the face is Debbie Harry, but as Hannah mentioned, there are very talented players and songwriters. From one, one of the slogans back in the 70s was, quote, Blondie is a band. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're not just the girl who's the blonde right. up front. They are a band. And, yeah. and you know, I'm going to make a point a little later about um, how that played into a breakthrough. Uh, I want to keep my powder dry a bit, but uh, there is a point I'll make later. Mm -hmm. And look, I, 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 I think the early stuff, the mid stuff, all very solid, and by the time they begin to fracture away as a band, you can hear that fracturing <laughs> happening in real time, I think, uh, on the American, music, yeah. on the albums. And as Anna mentioned, there's this there's this reunion that did very well initially. I don't think we'll spend a whole lot of time on it because the core of what this band was is that initial six-year, seven-year run in the late 70s and early 80s when a lot of what they did was going to uh, preview the sounds and looks 
of the 1980s. They were a band really ahead of their time in many ways. I think both Hannah and Scott have done a fantastic job setting this up. I, I think the way I'll start, at least, is by saying, like, you know, on the on political beats, I often tell these rather boring, turgid stories about how I liked this group when I was a kid, and then I realized that it was uncool to like them, and I and it rejected them. But then I saw the light later on as an adult. You know, like that kind of a story with Genesis. Other groups. <laughs> Blondie was never uncool. Blondie was always cool from the moment I encountered them as a small child all throughout my evolution for whatever reason, even as I rejected other stuff that had been sort of formative influences in the 80s. Debbie Harry and Blondie just stood apart. Why? Because she's Debbie Harry and because that music was Blondie's. It was it was a thing apart to me almost like they, they were, she was regal in a way and just sort of and, and, and that began my fascination with this band. I knew all the hits as a kid. Of course, we had the best of Blondie. Everyone had that on CD. You probably had it on vinyl, right, Scott? I'm going to guess. No, no. No, no. I mean, you had to have Call Me. That wasn't on any of the albums. So we got Best of Blondie. And I, I listened to that thing all the way through. Every one of those songs is imprinted in my DNA. But, you know, always Blondie stayed with me. And I had this, and we will return to this. Boy, we will return to this probably around the end of our show. I had this thought, even when I was growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, watching Madonna do all her Madonna moves and like watching VH1 and Material Girl and all that. I'm just like, wasn't well, this just Blondie, basically? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it was more commercially successful, but it wasn't one-tenth as good. And that's the joy of going back to rediscover this music is that all the hits are great and the hits are beautiful because they're built, as Hannah pointed out, not just on the personas that Blonde, that Debbie Harry plays in as the front woman for the band and the way that the band's music sort of contoured itself around her and her persona because you know, she wasn't the only, she wrote well, almost all the lyrics, but uh, I mean, the musical songwriting was done in large part by other guys in the band, Chris Stein primarily, uh, uh, who's the guitarist and her partner, 
Um, and then, of course, they did a lot of covers. And the, that's the thing about Blondie. When you go back and listen, half of these songs, you don't realize they're covers. The tide is high. Hannah mentioned that. I've been listening to that song for my entire life. First of all, I thought it was actually probably, a, if anything, I was like, well, that's reggae. That's probably a Bob Marley track, isn't it? No, I had no idea. It's a Blondie song. And the only reason I've ever heard it is her. Right. And it makes it sound like her own hanging on a telephone. It makes it sound like a Blondie song. These guys had a unique style that, as Scott points out, previews a lot of what's going to come throughout the 80s. But it's an also, in its own way, a beautiful fulfillment of, of everything that kind of, I think they're, in, in a lot of ways, a quintessential new wave band. The way you think of, like, can you summarize a genre in one group? And I always say, well, if it's post-punk, Echo and the Bunnymen is the most post-punk, post-punk band of all time. Not even Joy Division is more post-punk than Echo and the Bunnymen were. In a similar way, Blondie is the most American new wave group of all time. In their entire trajectory, the way they grew and evolved, you know, Talking Heads maybe is the only other group. And of course, they were peers on the scene at that time. And I think they probably influenced one another as well. Um, they're the only other group that could kind of claim a similar, you know, stake a similar claim to just representing a genre in its whole and doing it so well. this group and, and and also i guess there's one other thing is is that well I, we'll, we'll get into it when we discuss we, we kind of set up who debbie harry is and why she was such a wonderful wonderful front woman hannah kind of spoke to this up front um but i think maybe scott can can help set us up when we kind of explain where she comes from and where the band comes from because debbie harry was no like 18 year old ingenue she was no like young taylor swift like playing her songs at 17 and you know in a recording studio she wasn't like even kate bush she'd been around for a while so scott you want to you sort of explain the wind in the willows and whatnot to the rest of us i will do my best yes as you mentioned uh, i can chime in too i mean obviously i yeah. know a lot of this they, they did not just appear you know magically on the scene in 1976 77 uh the, the band had been in, in in curation for a while and especially uh christine and and Debbie Harry, who since the early 70s had been playing music and very inspired by the scene that was happening in, in, in New York. Chris Stein uh, joins this band called the Stilettos, uh, early 70s, around 1973. And Debbie Harry was already in the band, uh, was one of the band's vocalists. And she had worked previously as a waitress and a Playboy bunny. Look, her, her looks were always an, an attribute. 
no doubt. And but remember, in the late 60s, she was right. you know, with her original brunette hair. She was like a psychedelic folk singer yeah, folk in this rock. band that put out one record. Folk rock. <laughs> it's like the, I've heard a couple clips. It ain't great. It's just weird. But like, yeah, that's, you know, she, she'd been kicking around for quite yep. some time. This is uh, uh, an obliquely uh, reference, and, and I don't do it just to pressure you anymore because we've done it. But it's like the Huey Lewis story in, in a way, it, just that. When Huey Lewis began to have success, he was not a 23-year-old kid. He was in his early 30s. Uh, and Debbie Harry, much the same way, had been active on the scene for virtually a decade before Blondie started to have hits and, and to sell albums. She was older than many people perhaps thought they that thought that she was. Uh, the, the analogy I was going to make was Rick Ocasek in the car. That too. Remember That's how an like excellent they, one. They yes. all tried to hide how old they were. Yes. They'd again been playing for like, you know, like eight years or something like that before they made a bit. Yeah. Yep. So they, they break away. Stein and, and Harry break away from the, st- uh, the Stilouettes in, uh, in 74 and begin to form their own band, which was named Blondie. You had truck drivers and others calling out, you know, catcalling to, to Debbie Harry. Hey, Blondie. And so they took that as the name uh, of the band. The initial um, uh, lineup was was in flux until around 75 or so when Clem Burke, very important addition, comes in. Uh, Gary Valentine, who was their original bassist, comes in around that time. And they add a few other pieces, very important. Uh, Jimmy Destry, who plays keyboards and organ for the band. Uh, he's a very important part of the early lineup. Uh, he joined in 75. And so all this begins to come together. <laughs> deal with a label I've never heard of before and probably never will again called Private Stock Records. And that's where they release a a first single. And that's where a debut album is issued later in 1976. But again, they're they're steeped in this New York scene, CBGB. And as Jeff mentioned, Talking Heads and bands like that. This is that New York underground, um, not quite punk rock, but also not... um, um, you know, not not quite new wave either. You know, it's all these different ingredients coming together. They're part of that scene as they've put together. Try, this. If I could try to define it with a little bit more kind of nebulous specificity, if that's a <laughs> phrase, uh, like just give you a sense of what was going on in that scene at that time. Like it, it was diverse. It, it wasn't all punk rock. So like, there's like you know, like the Ramones, right, and Richard Hell and the Voidoids, and like you know, blank generation and a lot of that really kind of like aggressive stuff. But then there were also like curiously polite melodic bands like Talking Heads, in mm-hmm. fact. And and Blondie was one of those, but they were very they had sass and quirk. Everything about them that you know you see on their first album. That's CBGB era Blondie. And, and it, it 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 has this weird, I would almost say you know, this kind of could take us into, you know, the discussion of the first album, because all the songs, their first two singles are all, all released on the record. And right. they're in better mixes anyway, frankly. So you just want to hear them on the albums. Um, 
This is a weird kind of a combination of 50s kitsch, New York, modern urban knowingness, you know, and it, the sexy kittenish of kittenishness of, uh, you know, Debbie Harry. But it, what what makes it all work is there are two twin attacks. It's first of all, the band is kind of sort of loose and light. They're not like tight, but they're very genial. They have this very almost circus-like 50s retro sound that still stays modern and hits modern notes and guitar solos at times. And then on top of it all is Debbie Harry singing like, I don't know, I think of her as like a roller girl waitress from a 50s bar who's actually fighting off Godzilla at the same time. it's, It's a weird combination of different eras and different times and contrasts that creates that first album, 1976's Blondie, which is uh, when I first discovered it, I think it was probably near the end of high school. Uh, And this is one that doesn't have a lot of their big hits, right? Um, But what it has is something, nothing else sounds like this. There's no other, I don't think there's, first of all, there's no other Blondie album that sounds quite like this, but there's certainly no other album by any other band that has the same <laughs> sort of retro kitsch combination mm-hmm. that to me has just been like, it's a one-off and I love it and I've always loved it ever since the day I heard it. that it's you know important when you're starting off to just understand how much of the New York street mentality is in this band and you both Mm -hmm. already pointed that out but CBGB was this place where you were getting all these different um, styles of of music and uh, you know established bands you know startup bands whatever this is you know 70s New York down at 315 Bowery um, and it's a place that in her memoir, uh, Debbie Harry described CBGB as it was a pit, but it was our pit. Like it's this, uh, <laughs> this tiny stage and, um, and just kind of a mess of a place. Um, and I can't resist, uh, t- telling about the, uh, the original name of CBGB as I discovered in the memoir also is, uh, it's actually CBGB slash OMFUG, which stands for Country, Bluegrass, Blues, and Other Music of Uplifting Gormandizers. So there is just for the whole scene, there is this very like knowing, uh, knowing kind of of humor um, and then just a very much a a, a, sh- a streetwise uh, mentality. There's all sorts of stories about, you know, in the early days, they were rehearsing in like in illegal places down in the financial district, just like empty warehouses and all and that sort of thing. Shopping in thrift stores um, for their for their costumes, and um, that's where Debbie Harry is getting her um, early, you know, developing her early image um, and some of the roles that that she plays on stage. And, and I think that's, that's really important in, in, um, into the music to, to understand that. 
also kind of sad. I have to say, I was um, up in New York earlier this summer and had to walk by the original CBGB. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it is now uh, a clothing store called John Vervados. <laughs> oh, God, was, no. Like, <laughs> I was like, is there even a plaque or anything? And no, not that I saw. I have some very sad photos on a, on a rainy day in front of John Vervados clothing store. Um, but anyway, back in... Uh, Back in the day, you know, it was it was the uh, it was the place to be, and um, I think that Debbie came onto the scene as such a contrast to other leading women because, as we've already talked about, there was that element of like the '60s sing-song folksy hippie with long hair singing "Ooh Ah" whatever that she tried in the Wind of the Willows, and she's like, "No, I'm made to be uh, a leading lady." And, um, and then her competition was Patty Smith, you know, who dressed like a man and wore, uh, you know, the kind of the more grungy style. Um, and she comes, uh, on the stage, you know, uh, with the, you know, the, the blonde hair and a mini skirt and heels. Um, but like with a, but like still with a punk look, um, and and really is like clearly playing with um, with all these styles um, from right out the gate. I mean, she says her. I mean, it's hair. one of the most transfixing. Okay, I'm just gonna just not lie to you. As a kid growing <laughs> up, punk Barbie was one of the most transfixing yeah. images imaginable, and that was Debbie Harry. Right. She had that sort of like tousled hair, and she looked like she you know she'd just been running around the back alleys for an hour and a half, and run out on stage to sing a song. The, the mini skirt doesn't quite fit too, but she just like a little cupid yeah. doll. She looks like right. a Barbie doll, and so like yes, it it is it, it is iconic imagery, almost Hollywood perfect. Right, but like a like a roughed up Marilyn Monroe, you know, yes, which segs exactly into right. she Ex loved Marilyn Monroe. And, I mean, that to be takes yeah. the, the debut single, the first song on the album, is like, where she does that little interest. Like, I saw you standing on the corner. You look so big and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. So when you smiled, I laid my heart on the line. She just sets the template for like what the appeal is going to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And her first song, this wasn't, you know, the beginning of the, the album, but first song she ever wrote was Platinum Blonde right. about Marilyn Monroe, Jean, Jane May and Marlene, the, the famous blondes um, of Hollywood. And that I, I think another theme that some of the, the genre that they're playing with it comes through and even Blondie too, is this old Hollywood homage. Um, mm -hmm. That's really fun to follow as well. 
even schlock Hollywood homage, like Attack of the oh, Giant yeah. Ants, is, which is the, this is the, okay, Attack of the Giant Ants ends this album. X Offender begins it. And this is what I mean when I say, like, this is why people thought it was like very 50s retro. I love Attack of the Giant Ants. It's such a wonderful, like, first of all, the the way Debbie, like, sings along with the chorus, the, la, 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 la. Right. But it's almost like a Caribbean little thing, which you, by the way, comes back for the band, of course, a lot later in their career. But it just seems so jaunty and joyful. And like she's actually singing lyrics about ants destroying the world. That's, the song is actually about the attack of the giant ants. And it's just what's a wonderful moment. Do you want to you want to take any thoughts upon on the weird the weird retro glory of this debut? It's fun. It's really fun, and you can tell that they both um, they're both they both are sort of sending up and celebrating these styles, right? They really do appreciate the way all things work, the way that these sixty girl groups got their sound together, or the, the kind of the weirdness like of the crystals and stuff. Yeah, like that. yeah, or the weirdness of you know surf rock riffs, or as you said, the, the lyrics for Attack of the Giant Ants. And by the way, there are a few songs we'll probably get to in which you say that's what that song's about. Yep, that's what that song's about. This that's is really a about. Yeah. song about giant ants uh, attacking. Before I say a few good things, I did. I thought this was a weird <laughs> addendum. So Rolling Stone has these lists, which are just meant to be argued about. But this album ranks 401 on the list of 500 greatest albums of all time. And I like this album, guys. That seems a bit effusive in the praise. <laughs> wait, wait, <laughs> right? wait, 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 wait. Did Parallel Lines rank or uh, would, Eat to the Beat rank higher? I, will, I didn't look that up. Um, I think Parallel Lines was, was, was higher up, you know, somewhere in the solid hundreds or something like that. See, I thought I was going to make the contrarian take that this is one of their two greatest albums, but maybe no, I, you know, Stone I don't did know it for maybe. you. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I don't like that. That never makes me feel. Well, there's good stuff here. I mean, there is good stuff here. And it is, you know, I, 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 I thought of this or made this comparison just before we started taping and emailed it off to Hannah and, and Jeff. And that's you can sort of see how a band like uh, the B-52s take some cues from an album like this. This is 1976, so it's just before the B-52s are sort of bursting on the scene in the late 70s. And you take a song like Little Girl Lies, uh, second song on the album, and boy, there's a lot of B-52s template that could have been taken from there. That that bold female vocal style, uh, the, the campiness and the fun that they have with that the hand claps, the throwback to the 50s and 60s, and even musically, that very overdriven, fuzzy sort of new wave synth that Jimmy Destry plays on Little Girl Lies. That's how the little girl lies.
sound that would be used, I don't want to say emulated, but certainly used on those early B-52s albums. And it's it's here on this Blondie debut, which sold so poorly, who's to say if anyone actually heard it? I'm not sure. There are a couple of outstanding tracks on this album. I want to highlight uh, uh, A Shark in Jet's Clothing uh, later. These explicit like West Side Story references to the sharks and the jets. It has a wonderful, snaky little guitar line. And what I also love is the, the finger finger snaps in the middle, which again, throw you back into this retro point of view. And my favorite song on this record is absolutely Rip Her to Shreds. This, oh, yeah. this combination. I was wondering, I was like, yeah. why wouldn't you love that? I oh, do love it, in fact. Her. You know her. Okay. She's so Her nose dumb. job is real atomic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come and, back and later. There's so many good parts of that song, the, the merger of that sort of 70s punk new wave and, and the 50s, 60s era of, of music they were so frequently hearkening back to on this album. And sometimes I, I think she's talking about herself, you know, the red eye shadow, the green mascara, you know, her face. Oh, she's Debbie, so, yeah, she's right, too Debbie much, face right. is, is always made up in that matter. Yeah. Yuck. She's, she's too much. You wonder how often she might have heard that throughout the 70s as they were trying to find themselves and find the band and find success. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a reference to herself and the way other people treated her. And you'd hear again in the future more songs about how other people are treating Debbie Harry. songs in particular and then yeah little girl lies early on those are the ones that sort of make this album what it is for me debbie here is very involved by the way in the writing here she writes or co-writes six of the 11 songs on this record she's a, not just a face and not just a voice but a key contributor to the sound and feel of all these songs on the debut and do you have yeah. any thoughts I definitely, i'm gonna make a defense of this album <laughs> Well, another fun uh, gimmick that she had, you know, performing this, at, you know, I assume CBGB uh, is when she performed Ripper to Shreds, she would she tore up a wedding dress on stage, uh, which is, you know, just a lot of fun to imagine. And another rumor about uh, who the song was actually about was a, a Sex Pistols groupie or girlfriend, uh, Nancy Spungeon. Uh, oh, which makes it just more straightforwardly nasty. But with Debbie, you'd never know. You just don't. I, I, I have to say, Scott, I understand why you don't love some of these songs. Like, I guess then the '50s retro kitsch, like in the flesh, is probably not to your tastes. I love that song because it's like it's such a weird, weird thing. It takes like you know the sweet '50s ballad, you know, oh I love you, baby, you know, like you know, we're gonna be in the church of love, and then it mm-hmm. turns into something that's just like. Like, like X-ratedly carnal in the flesh, in the flesh, hot and wet. And apparently, <laughs> like you, you said, this has only sold like six thousand copies in uh, Great Britain, in America. But it, it's songs like that that actually made Blondie take off first. Darling, 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 darling. 
in like the other parts of the yeah. English speaking world. Australia, Australia, very big. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Australia was the first. They accidentally played the B side instead of X Offender on the A side, which, by the way, was supposed to be called Sex Offender, but they couldn't get away with that, so it's X Offender. Um, you know, just to give you a sense of the Blondie sensibility at that time. Um, but also, like, you know, these sort of retro things. I'm surprised you don't, like, look good in blue. I mean, the noir sound of that, of that song, I think, is excellent. And, of course, it has that, that it's, famous and you know, famously censored double entendre, you know, I'll give you some head and shoulders to cry right. on. I mean, that, again, Blondie playing with all of those, you know, sex kittenish, vulnerable, but knowing tropes. I love this album. I think there are songs here that are like Man Overboard. It, that's all Debbie Harry. I think that's a fantastic musical track and just a great vocal performance. I don't really, I, I even like the goofy stuff like I lost my, I, I lost my love on the rifle range. <laughs> most ridiculous song ever. Kung Fu Girls. Man, Kung Fu Girls has like a really great little keyboard that's moment good, yeah, in the middle yeah, of it yeah. there. You don't even notice it. Every song on this record really appeals to me. So I'm actually a little surprised that you're only like so-so on it. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, I, you know, you mentioned sort of the the, the feel. I, I think a few of these things, they actually just do better later on. Um, you know, yeah, you, that is yeah. a point you've already mentioned. How you sometimes see the recapitulating ideas, yes. and you yes. know this is actually a good, good, good point to mention. A demo they had for a song during these sessions, they just kept on calling it. They actually, it was one of the first things they ever recorded back in like 1974, even like before they'd even gotten a recording deal. There's this thing called the disco song. And so there's this weird demo of it, you know, and Debbie Harry is bluffing out some some lyrics and it's just, you know, called Once I Had a Love and it was a gas and then soon turned out it was a pain in the ass. They were going to come back to that one a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, that song was kicking around just as early as this time. Do you have any final thoughts on the debut before we move on to an album, which I suspect that if Scott didn't like Blondie's debut, he's probably not going to like this one anymore. It's interesting how much this album sets the tone or sets out the themes for what's going to develop uh, more fully in later albums. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that we've already talked about a couple of them, uh, but the kind of surfer rock or Caribbean thing um they come back to and you know it becomes you know most uh popular or more popularized in uh, the tide is high um you've got like the the creepy stalker stuff um and like the 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 like very questionable sexy stuff uh that um there are a lot of their big singles are like stalker songs you know um and so that one way or another being the being the main one. And so, you know, that comes you back. You can call later. me. Think about it. I mean, that's, yeah, that's absolutely. Uh, and uh, that and, and call me is also, you know, it's a um, it's for a movie, American Gigolo, that uh, that is about um, it's a gender swap, you know, but uh We'll get, it we'll also get to is, that during our own. Yeah, I'm stealing our thunder, things. but that it, it's also playing with just her um her teasing like sex offender 
stuff. Uh, so this sets up, this teases, um, I think is an important word for early, early Blondie. This teases a lot of what comes later. So it's really fun once you dive into, um, their later work to see how, how it grows, um, into the mature band. So I guess that takes us to Plastic Letters, their, their follow-up album. And everybody always refers to this as Blondie's sophomore slump album. And I, you know, j- you know, inevitably it's going to fall between two, for me at least, pretty tall stools. But my hottest take on the show is basically going to be that I really like this one a lot. It has nothing really iconic on it. And, and, and a lot of these songs were around with the band when they were still recording their debut. So there is a sense of like, well, these aren't the ones that have the most immediate hooks or hits. <laughs> but that to me just means they're a little weirder and artier. And because I'm a guy who generally loves the whole new wave post-punk aesthetic, I like listening. This is a this is an album actually I think Debbie Harry spends the least amount of time writing on. Uh, she, yes. she only contributes to like a couple of songs. Three of so them. Most three of, of 13. Yeah, and the most of the rest of it's it, the, their covers, or it's it's Stein or Jimmy Destry, or even who's the guy in the band that left that gave them. I'm always touched by your presence, dear. That's a fantastic. So Gary Valentine, that's Gary the guy. Valentine. So Gary Valentine left Blondie right before this 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 album was going to be recorded. But Chris Stein was just like, listen, the song's too good. <laughs> we got to record this song. Like, even if he's not in the band anymore. So they did. And of course, it's actually the best song on the record. I guess it's technically a cover at that point, but it doesn't feel like one for obvious reasons. But the most famous song on Plastic Letters, uh, which is, I guess, maybe the one we'll address first before I get into the weird arty crap that I like, uh, is Denis. Denis, Denis. Uh, which is interesting because, first of all, it points out how they were making a play for the European audience after mm-hmm. they realized they'd broken big um, in, you know, in the UK and um, maybe even had a continental aspect to them. But uh, they still had no luck in America. So they record this song, which is basically a kind of like a rocked up version of a French chanson. Uh, and I love it. I, I love it. To me, this is actually, again, a part of the element of Blondie's style that has always been unique is that they they aren't just American. I mean, isn't the entire album auto-American about that conceit, really? Is that they have a lot of sort of like European and sort of global sounds to them. And this is the first aspect of that. And uh, to me, it's almost kind of predictable coming from their debut album. Denis, even if it's covers, is, is, is one of the best songs on Plastic Letters. this early 60s feel um the song was originally from 63 by a group mm-hmm. called randy right. and the rainbows uh, and what i see Daddy, which is just such a such an early 60s band <laughs> randy yeah, and absolutely. the rainbows you can't not have a rainbow if you're right. in the 60s uh there right. must be a rainbow everywhere uh yeah, so I see Debbie playing with her, you know, bad experience in the Wind in the Willows here, doing the ooh-wah, you know, 60s hippie stuff. Uh, 
and she really she really turns it on. Uh, I think something else that's really interesting about this as a first you know first big cover is the gender swap and she does this all the time now obviously you know a number of songs if it happens to be written for a man and you switch the pronouns it's fine um it's 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 an easy switch but she talks about how she like intentionally does this um we'll get to this where it changes the actual dynamic of the song absolutely exactly you're like wait if a woman's singing this it means something entirely different exactly right yeah so she'll she'll do that um later on as well. And just, this is something that she talks about the Blondie character doing it. It's a, it's very feminine and yet it's sort of androgynous. And she's just playing with, especially like in the, in the love songs, um, the, the, the gender roles like this one. I was set to be disappointed and Jeff forced me, he didn't know he did it, but he forced me to take a, a second, third, fourth listen by praising this album a bit in our email thread before we started. And I'm glad he did, because I think upon review, uh, it's better than my initial, it's better than my initial evaluation. I would say I actually like it better than the debut. The the production, it's the same producer, but I think it sounds a little more polished. It's a little brighter and sharper in areas. And some of the individual songs, to me, Jeff, there's no standout. That's probably true. There's no legendary song probably on, on here. But I think some of the individual moments stand out as being sort of um, mile markers, is what I'll say. Like, this is what we can do. This is a good example of it. Uh, contact in Red Square for two reasons one is it's the kind of thing that that kind of works only for them like it's it is this weird story about you know microfilm and cyanide pills and icbms married to like this noir sort of sort of music and you know you think it should it's a little vignette you know you the only other people who did stuff with that actually were squeeze okay squeeze the only the uk analog stuff like this off but yes i i that's like a unique blondie thing i agree right asked later to do a song for a Bond film. Didn't work out, but perhaps someone heard Contact in Red Square and thought, well, that's a band that could pull this sort of thing off. I love I didn't have the nerve to say no. That is just a huge, massive chorus that you can't get out of your head. And the lyrics there, all those internal rhymes inside the lines, I love the way that that song unfolds. That's my favorite song on the album. You got
And I think one of the keys that sort of turned me on this was that trio of songs on the second half, all written by Jimmy Destry. And his songs aren't always the best, but they are memorable, and it would be a different band without them. And so he wrote three songs in a row here, co-writes one of them, two are solo. Um, One is um, No Imagination, which is a really well-written song that unfolds very nicely. Uh, Kidnapper, which sort of harkens back to like this late 60s bluesy rockabilly. And then one well, called- you, here's the thing. Debbie Harry just sounds so winsome singing a song like Kidnapper. Again, the, 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 some of the appeal, you'll hear it when you hear like the songs. She just has this sort of like bubbly charm, even when singing these like ridiculously like plotted lyrics. Yeah. And I, it's almost impossible to explain without like pointing directly to the music, but it comes through on that. So. And then Detroit 440, 442 is the last one that has a, has a harder edge. Um, those Destry songs really help the album. And the other one I'll note very quickly is I'm on E, which almost has a very Ramones feel. Again, that the New York scene, it's so much bounding energy for a song that's about being on empty, essentially. There are just these, again, the, I think these mile, and, and then fan mail, the first song of the album, the explosiveness, the expansiveness. And that's another of that Destry song. song. I thought, I was yeah. surprised you didn't mention that one. I think that's great. Um, so, again, second, third, fourth listen, that's where this one started to appeal to me. And I heard what was happening on Plastic Letters. I'm glad I'm not entirely alone. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that the, the problems that I have with Plastic Letters, I actually don't think, I think the production was not great. I think, yeah. It's funny because when we get into the next era, uh, Chapman, their producer, like, will always talk about how, like, oh, these guys were just slackers and layabouts in the studio. I had to whip their butts into shape to get them to play in time, et cetera. Um, but there's a looseness on the first two records that I do enjoy. Um, and this one's an improvement, I guess, in that sense. I think it's almost a little bit overproduced, in mm-hmm. fact, because you go to a song like Bermuda Triangle Blues, and this is pure Chris Stein. It's this weird, almost art rocky thing. And of course, what's the concept about? Yes, it's a play that gets lost in the Bermuda. It's lost, people. You wrote a song about lost, okay? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it sounds beautiful on the album, but on the album, it's done with like synthesizers. And I was pointing, you know, the other, other folks here uh, before we did the show to like the outtake version that's now on the box set, where it's just, just with piano and there's a beauty to the sort of art rocky composition of these songs that they wouldn't return to once they sort of sanded down their style on the next record that i'll always miss it was there on the first record i think they were refining it here and it's almost like well they could have gone a different path now if they'd gone a different path they would not have been one-tenth as successful or iconic a group as they became so I guess I can't regret it at the end. But there's something about the sort of sound on plastic letters.
you know, even a song like Cautious Lip, which which is the final song on the record, and it, and it, it I think actually it's one that Stein wrote with some other guy who I've never even heard of. Um, and it, it's uh, a rec- a song that begins as almost like a slow, more ballad thing, and then it just gets like weirder and nastier as it ends. Um, this is a Blondie that was going towards the avant garde, and they didn't go that way, and I do still miss it. I think another thing that's happening in this album uh, is Debbie Harry is really has really stepped up her vocal versatility and is mm. gaining an edge uh, before the before Parallel Lines and before the uh, the era of uh, Mike Chapman, which we'll talk about with the next album. Chapman often gets credit for you know he would make you know Debbie Harry do like hundreds of takes, you know, and just drag these vocal performances out of her that have these incredible, you know, growls and screams and wails and, um, uh, you know, 10 seconds after doing just a very beautiful, um, charming, you know, melodic line or whatever. In fan mail, um, you see in the, the, just in the line, the bells in my head keep ringing as one example, she is singing along this lovely melody and it ends in just a a growl or an echo. Mm-hmm. She's like doing some sort of echoey thing or something like that. And she's doing that all herself. You know, that's, um, that's already there. Um, and she's, uh, she's finding her way as a vocalist as early as this album. And I guess that does bring us to their third album. So at this point, they'd had no real success in America. Both of these records were flops. So every 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 artist on a label faces this moment of truth, which is like, hey, you gotta you know put up or shut up. It's not enough to have the occasional top ten single in the United Kingdom, buddy. They have like <laughs> one one hundredth of our population. So no, you gotta make it in America or you're broke. And this is when they decided they 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 left Richard Gaudier, who was their original producer. They they went out to Los Angeles. They recorded with Mike Chapman, who they initially were like wary of because he was a commercially kind of all Los Angeles dude. Uh, and they came out with Parallel Lines, so I guess it worked out well enough. This is 1978. This is one of the greatest albums of its era of any era. Uh, this is I sometimes when I was a kid, tried to advance the contrarian hot take that it, it wasn't Blondie's best album, that it's actually the one after this. But who am I kidding? It's parallel lines. This thing is a miracle. I mean, as much as I like the first two Blondie albums and I see the direct connections between those and this, this record is a quantum leap forward from the first dial tone of the first song. I'm in the phone booth, it's a one across the hall. She said 
record is, is good. There's, there's, there's no weak spots. And it, it's all about sort of refining and sanding down their sounds. And I guess the first thing I want to say is not about any of the particular songs. In, I just want to say, like, finally, I hear Clem Burke the way he's supposed to be heard. And I think this is the greatest you know, contribution that Mike Chapman brought to Blondie. Clem Burke is the drummer in Blondie. And, of course, Chapman criticized him. He's a sloppy drummer. He didn't play on time. Well, I mean, whatever their differences. He makes him sound like a juggernaut from here on out. And he is just, you know, not only he, whether he's playing a disco beat or he's, he's rocking it up. Finally, the drums on Blondie's songs come through for these next few albums in a way that they hadn't before. Yeah. And I think it really is one of the major things that redefines their sound. Now, anyone wants to get specific about an album we've been waiting to talk about for the entire show? I, I want to jump because I want to follow up on what Hannah was saying at the end of Plastic Letters, because I think this is one of the big changes on parallel lines. And I would imagine it's something that Chapman pushed them to do. So Hannah is talking about how Debbie Harry's becoming more sophisticated with her delivery and her vocals. And I think that's all true. But it's an, it's, it's an explosion here. It's something new. Her vocals are pushed right front and center. And the way that she delivers, again, you know, from one way or another, which we'll talk more in depth on, the, the growling, the guttural quality to it, the, the tricks and the twists and the acrobatics that she's able to pull off with her vocals, and then placing that right in the middle of the mix for the listener. I do wonder is if, if, if they were previously somewhat wary of doing something like that because it didn't, you know, like Jeff said, Blondie is a band. It's not just Debbie Harry and her beauty and her face and, and her voice. We're, we're more than just her. And Mike Chapman perhaps said, okay, maybe, but if you want to sell records, maybe you put this really beautiful woman with the amazing vocals who can sing in this acrobatic way right in the middle of stuff. And that might lead to success. That's what I hear as being one of the biggest differences from from plastic letters to parallel lines is just the emphasis and the focus on her vocals. And yes, you hear that from these very first set of songs. Jeff alluded to the the telephone uh, sound, the dial tone on hanging on the telephone. I know that Jeff is going to argue for a different song. To me, this might be the quintessential Blondie song, and it's not even one they wrote. It's one that's a, it's a cover Dunk. from a band called The Nerves, but it's totally theirs. It's completely theirs. That that manic quality and and, and sort of the, the, the lustful uh, feeling hiding underneath some of the lyrics. The energy here is unstoppable, and it's a perfect perfect leadoff track. You get to the chorus in twenty seconds. That's all it takes to get to that first hanging on the telephone. That's that's it. And it's a wonderful way to begin what is an absolutely classic album. And the other thing is, Scott, you know, you can tell the song that they've been listening to. For me, hanging on the telephone, 
we were joking before the show started. I was like, is that a better song that begins with Dial Toad than Switchboard <laughs> Susan by Nick Lowe? Which is all, which is a year later. So I actually have a theory here because Hanging on the Telephone sounds to me for all the world like Blondie was listening to the Police's debut album, Outlandos Demore. All right. That sounds like next to you. She sings mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Sting. Okay. You know, the da 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 That's a police rhythm, actually. And then it's the way they take that song. And then, of course, Nick Lowe was listening to Hanging on the Telephone. So he decided <laughs> to do his own kind of version of that with the cover of Switchboard Susan. Uh, it's just a little, I, I love doing these little daisy chains of like musical influences. But God, I love that song so much. Keep going, God. You can go forever with this record. Just a quick fun fact about that one is that that actually it was actually sent to them by uh, a fanboy in L.A., uh, Jeffrey Lee, Lee Pierce, who had he was the leader of like, I can't remember if it was the Blondie fan club or the the Debbie Harry fan club. That distinction is important. Um, but, yes, yeah, it's, it's from the nerves. And uh, it also was a male to female gender swap. Mm-hmm. There you go. I mean, the sequencing of this record is, is something quite amazing for yes, me. Yes, I, 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 I think, you know, you talk about albums, like the only thing I can say against it is that just because of what happens on like, you know, track 10, that the last two feel like a little bit of a coda, but it's, it begins with hanging on telephone. Okay, you think, well, that's the biggest hot rush you've ever heard. And then immediately right after that, you get the horniest punk rock song of all time in one way or another. Which, uh, you know, Hannah was just talking about, you know, Hannah and Scott were talking about, like, you know, how Debbie Harry's vocal has been evolving. This thing is positively radioactive with lust. The way her voice curdles when she's like, one way or another, I'm going to find you. I'm going to get you, get you, get you, get you. I mean, imagine that girl in that miniskirt singing that song coming right after you. And you know why that song was for or to be a mega hit in 1978 I, yeah. uh, I used it explicitly, specifically, uh, just after, and this is going to be weird, but it'll, it'll make sense. Uh, after Osama bin Laden was killed, uh, I, did a, I did a promo for the radio station that we, we were on, News Talk Station, because we were live when it happened, and we were live when the press conference happened, and then the next day was all this coverage about, right? And so I did this montage of all the stuff from the shows and how we covered the story, and I used one way or another gonna find you gonna get you and you talk about like that that lust and that's the reason it works so well for that promo because of the aggressiveness and like the inevitability 
but it was going to I am happen. going to worm my way right. into your life. And buddy. so I mean, that's that's what it sounds like. It's stalker music. Right. Is what it is. And I mean, that's why it worked for the promo, because we were, you know, as a country, I don't know, not too political, but we were, you know, I, I know. focused on getting bin, bin Laden. We were going to get him at some point. We we're going to find him. We're going to make him be held responsible. But that's why that song worked so perfect. It's one of my favorite pieces of production I've ever done because of that marriage of sort of message and song and especially the delivery of Debbie Harry. But here's the thing, like the album is so versatile too. So you have those two, those are two high voltage, high gauge, aggressive kind of punk new wave attacks. And then you get a song like Fade Away and Radiate. Uh, that's that's all Steins. Yep. And I think it's, it's so beautiful. I mean, it, it's almost like it sets a tempo. We've talked already about how there's the the iconic, you know, Hollywood imagery sort of imbued within the DNA of Blondie as a band, and that's a song about like you know, like falling asleep at, at night to like you know the like '50s movies and looking at all these old stars and you know just sort of like you know as you drift off to sleep, you realize they've drifted off into posterity as well. And then it's a, and it's a ballad. It's a slow, beautiful ballad, and Debbie sings it so well and then of course you know you knew this is the moment i was waiting for in the background in comes my favorite guitarist of all time robert fripp of king crimson who we've already done on the show and i mention every chance i get uh he was of course on the new york scene in the late 70s and early 80s uh at around this time you i believe he was going to be doing peter gabriel's album then going on to add a lot of great guitars to david bowie's music uh and he just does this very ghostly haunt Thing. Uh, a, a perfect again art rock the stein thing was was going towards art rock and mm-hmm. i love that aspect of blondie and i think maybe fade away and radiate might be the single best example of it they ever did Die in 1955. fade away and Number, you know, I, I want to respond because Jeff said the, the last two songs. I really love "Just Go Away," and especially, Boy, especially as an album closer, there is a power. There's a power and, and a wistfulness almost in that chorus that makes it perfect as an album closer. And and, and two, that the the drumming of of Clem Burke, which is all over the place on one way or another is also very prominent here on Just Go Away. It's a song that Debbie wrote herself. And the sequencing, which Jeff mentioned, is a real standout quality of the album. And I think it ends on the per- on a perfect, perfect note. That chorus just has the right mix of power, but also reflection, and as I said, wistfulness. But Just Go Away is a perfect way to end this album. Oh, oh, oh.
this this album has three hit singles that we haven't even mentioned yet. Okay, like yeah, we haven't even talked about "Picture This" or "Heart of Glass" or "Sunday Girl." And I actually, what I want to let you know, maybe someone else discuss that. But actually, look again, just to return to my sort of like the one thing about Blondie that's not appreciated is the Stein's influence and the art rock influence. Um, this one even wasn't written by him, but I know, but I don't know has always been secretly my favorite song on parallel lines. And it's basically the quintessential example of a track I come to when I was like, wait, that's a cover. I had no <laughs> friggin' idea that that didn't come from the mind of Stein. You know, it's just like their, their, their new guitarist just walks into the group and throws this amazing art rock thing down. It's not really a cover, but I think of it that way because, like, you know, Frank Infante had not been notably, like, a major contributor to Blondie's sound, and this song has the, the, the weakest lyrics on the record, right? It's just it's basically nonsense. But the instrumental attack is something that they never did again. And I kind of wish they had because this one almost takes them into like UK magazine level art rock territory. That said, uh, does anybody want to talk about all the other incredible, wonderful, <laughs> famous songs here that we haven't even gotten around to mentioning yet? Hannah, Hannah? we've left some of the big ones for you, Hannah. You like well, disco, Hannah? You like disco I music? Have, I like a good steady beat. I know who likes disco music, and it was Debbie Harry. Uh, yeah, at some point with uh, uh, with the disco song or what became Heart of Glass uh, considered number 255 out of 500 of uh, the top songs ever written by Rolling Stone, uh, who obviously, you know, gets to decide all of these um, things definitively. <laughs> um, I might, I might rank it a little higher. I don't know, but uh, Debbie, Her they were, you know, trying to move it into the, you know, into their more punk sound. No one in the punk world was doing disco at the, at the time. Um, and someone just asked Debbie Harry, well, you know, what gets you hot? What gets you going? And she says, Donna Summer. And somehow, you know, they, they found a way to bring, um, disco to, uh, disco to punk in, you know, one of their most iconic songs. The, uh, it's the beatbox the, that does it. You know how it opens with that beatbox? You hear the little click, like the dick, yeah, the little, because it yeah. sounds just a little bit foreign. In 1978, that was a new sound. Uh, even in disco, you didn't hear that in the background. It was usually used for production, not for actual like you know disco music. But that made it arty. That makes Heart of Glass uh, like that's what I think got it over. It got it over in an audience that otherwise was gonna not like disco. Blondie somehow managed to do the crossover, but the reverse crossover in a very weird way. I, I'm fascinated by this song. I'll stop. You keep going. I'm sorry. Well, you can't call it pain in the ass. So Chris Stein uh, contributed uh, the title of Heart of Glass. Um, and, you know, that works a little bit better. 
because of, we've already talked about this, but how it meshes with um, all the other themes and styles of music that are, um, that are presented in the album, all the, uh, the you know, the roles that, that Debbie Harry has been playing, the way she's been teasing you. I mean, she starts out with her, first she's stalking you and then she's, you know, charming you with Picture This, which has just some of the loveliest long lyrical lines um, in, in, the, in the entire album. Um, and uh, Fade Away and Radiate, which is like a quintessential late 70s just trip. Um, Pretty Baby is back to, you know, just going down the set list. Pretty Baby is back to talking about uh, Brooke Shields um, in the, in the 1960s, referencing yeah, a very Alita. controversial uh, film, by the way. Do you know the film Pretty Baby? I know of the film Pretty Baby. If you she plays a child prostitute it, it, Susan yeah, Sarandon is her mother okay and who is her basically her 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 whatever you know or, you know pours her out it's awful <laughs> she like lives right, in a Louisiana why... whorehouse it's like it's like it's like one of those films that could only be made in the perverse 70s because <laughs> with an actual child it's like oh it's, you don't want to watch it right and that's why you have Leah you know uh referenced in in the song too which for the mm-hmm. more bookish of us uh unlocks the the key to that song um even if you're you know too young to know who brooke shields was until you look it up but until you you, you remember that she was one of michael jackson's dates to uh the grammys i, I believe yeah. it was it oh was brooke my. shields and then and then it was bubbles the chimp the next year if i recall <laughs> it's, it's this one of those 80s <laughs> trivia things that you you're, you you remember also, if you're a Simpsons fan, it was in that episode. That was how Bart tried to prove that Michael Jackson was the real Michael Jackson. He's like, <laughs> who are your dates to the Grammys? Brooke Shields and Bubbles. There you go. I mean, I, I, I will say one thing. I want to say one thing about Parallel Lines. And, and I guess maybe it goes to the song Heart of Glass in particular, but also another one. is it What, what is really underappreciated about Blondie is the fusion of this music. This is actual genuine like fusion of a lot of different styles and sounds in a way that doesn't even sometimes register as fusion because it's Blondie music, which is the best tribute you can pay to a band. When it's just like Heart of Glass is a Blondie song. Well, it's also a disco song. 
Remember Blondie? They're also the people who did One Way or Another. Is that a is disco song? No, it's a punk song. They find a, a way to work in a lot of different influences, and you even hear it on a song like Sunday Girl, which as a kid, my dad would be playing the best of Blondie. Wouldn't it be hilarious if I confess to you that this, of all things, was one of the ones that really leapt out to me? <laughs> this weird French chanson kind of a little thing. It sounds like it should be like an innocent French girl singing. In fact, there is a version of it they recorded yeah. in French for the French market because they understood exactly. It's that it really good like. too, and it's such it might a be beautiful. Better. It is such a beautiful melody by Debbie Harry, and she sings it so winsomely. And it has that again. It, it you take that kind of a thing, and then you you put it to uh, a sort of a kind of a nice kind of spiffy new wave beat. That's genuine fusion music in a way that I think is rarely appreciated about Blondie. And it's just one of the reasons why I love Parallel Lines so much. By the way, the other funny thing about Heart of Glass as a song is that, you know, I, I, I always, always amused by the way that Generation Z finally discovered it when, when Arcade Fire did Sprawl 2, Mountains Beyond Mountains, yeah. which is the, the exact same song, basically. You know, oh, I didn't I even love, know that until now. And then, and then live, they actually had Debbie Harry on to do a live like medley of the two songs where Regine Chasson just trades off. Debbie Harry walks on and it turns from sprawl to heart of glass because they know they obviously nicked the same, same disco synth sound from it. But uh, yeah, it's just so universal that people don't give it enough credit for being as fusionistic as it is, which is actually the way Blondie's path was going to go for the next couple of albums. Scott, you have any thoughts or you want to take us to the next one? Uh, I'm perfectly happy to take us to uh, the next one. Let us up for. Are you hungry? Uh, are you hungry? I, I actually I haven't had lunch right now. I think I'm going to go eat. It is you know Central Time lunchtime, so 
Jeff is ready to eat to the beat. Uh, the next album from Blondie in 1979. And following up something like Parallel Lines is always very difficult. There are expectations from the public. There are expectations from the uh, the record label. And so you have a lot of different things thrown into the stew that becomes eat to the beat. And commercially, you know, record sales wise, it went platinum, but it didn't sell as well as Parallel Lines. And it didn't have the number one hits that Parallel Lines had. Jeff alluded to this earlier, but um, man, it's a pretty darn good album, you know, taken just by itself. I know that Dreaming is one of Jeff's favorite songs, and I don't want to steal anything from there. But there are a number of songs on this record, including Dreaming, that stand alongside, I think, the very best work of the band. And it seems like this is one of the last moments in which Blondie was Blondie. And again, to, 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 to quote Jeff earlier, that Blondie was a band and Blondie wasn't just a little of Debbie here and some of Christine there and some session players and horns and strings, which begin to come in on the very next album. Eat to the Beat at least sounds like five people or six people pulling in the same direction. And it succeeds in a lot of ways. There are a lot of good songs on this record. Uh, Hannah, I want to throw it to you. Your thoughts on this follow-up to Parallel Lines from Blondie. up against parallel lines uh and just let them go at it and see which one's standing and i'm putting my money song for song me to the beat parallel lines is a better album taken as a whole you know i just love those albums that you put it on you know and from the first sound like with parallel lines that first ringtone all the way to the end it does not let you go Eat to the beat isn't quite that. There are there are things that don't quite flow, things that um things that don't mesh together in the same way. But these the best songs on this album, I think, are their best songs. I am also not gonna get in the way of um Jeff's uh you know, fandom for, for dreaming. I'll let him talk about that. But one song that really does it for me and might be the ultimate Blondie song for me is Die Young, Stay Pretty. The lyrics you on this song, you have to look them up because obviously, and listen to the song because I can't do justice for them, but it is the Blondie philosophy, uh, which is in the title, um, but with just these poetic, evocative images. And it's also just hilarious, both looking at the lines and uh, Debbie's delivery. It just, the, the, the image of the song, the, the, 
their, their you know central message what they think they're what they're out there to say um the emotional musical experience they want to give you is all together on this um on this song and and i i don't know it just lines uh in this song just like just go on rotation through my head like like all day i mean she's got um you sit all alone in your rocking chair, transistor pressed against an ear. Were you waiting at the bus stop all your life, or just to die by the hand of love? And then you go, you know, uh, to the the die young, uh, stay pretty, uh, chorus. Live fast because it won't last. That's an incredible, incredibly catchy song, and everything comes together on it. One other song I'll point out uh, before I hand it over is that Eat to the Beat is something that Debbie Harry said she could, you know, later on, she said, I could never possibly sing that again now. <laughs> and I think it's partly because that's their highest energy song. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, they've got a lot of high energy one. songs earlier on. Um, and also the lyrics are incredible. You got a sweet tooth. And I remember sitting in the kitchen, first you're eating peanut butter, then you're standing on the corner with a piece of pizza. And by the end, you have a tummy ache and you're eat- and you're drinking alcohol sex or alcohol. Alka-Seltzer. It's just too much fun. Um, and it, it, I know we talk about Parallel Lines as the, as the you know, the Cadillac uh, a- album, but this one just has a lot of energy in it and should not be overlooked. You gotta jump up to the beat up guest of amazing taste and refinement. I, I don't know how else to praise you because your thesis is exactly the same as mine, which is that yes, Parallel Lines probably start to finish is the better record, uh, but the peaks here are just so high. And yes, everybody's already been queuing it up. I gotta talk about one of the best damn songs in 1979. It's Dreaming. Dreaming opens Eat to the Beat and it opens it with a thundercrack. It's Clem Burke at his most Burkeness. He's almost Keith Moon on this song, right? And then you get a song that I, at least, you know, my thesis of Blondie has always been you can sand down their entire aesthetic to this song. This is a Debbie Harry, Chris Stein collaboration. She wrote the lyrics. He wrote the music. The music is so soaring with that synth line that just like, like go do, 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 that glides over everything. But when, when Debbie sings that lyric, that that's the blondie thing. You know, you know, she, first of all, the, the first, first verse is just classic. You know, like when I met you at the restaurant, you could tell I was no debutante. 
Um, you know, that's her, right? You know, she's she's a gorgeous little cutie doll, but she's she's nobody's fool, and she's you know she's going to give you some tough times. But it's the second verse that I love. The, the the preview of it is everything that Blondie's sort of. You know, we've talked a lot about like like what is it they're what they're standing for. But there's there's certain an ironic distance between that lyric. The sincerity of the lyric aura, she says, like, I don't want to live on charity. Pleasure's real or is it fantasy? Real to real is living rarity. People stop and stare at me, but we just walk on by and we just keep on dreaming. And then, then like later on in the song, I mean, remember I talked about Fade Away and Radiator earlier? Well, it's no accident that like, you know, and there's probably a Stein's contribution here where you're talking about the glamour of, of young people that fades and you have to live your dreams while you have time to dream. You know, he says, oh, well, otherwise we'll just all fade away and radiate right in the middle eight. Um, this is everything great about the band. This is, I think, that them coming to their full fruition and it's... Uh, only one of several great tracks on the record. Union City Blue. Mm -hmm. Just as I think Dreaming is the best song uh, that Blondie ever recorded, I think this might be the most underrated song that they ever did. You were, you know, you were it's designed to like this song. I'm, I listened to Union City Blues, and it's it's about <laughs> ten years early. Like it 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 just predicts a whole lot of music from the '80s, and especially that post punk stuff that you love. There's a lot of that in Union City Blues. I am not surprised in the least that you love this song. I mean, it's such a perfect, you know, you know, power, passion when she just sings that in the second verse. Um, you know, Union City Blue. It's also the video. If you've ever seen the video, I think somebody actually even pointed this out on Twitter to me the other day. And it's like this is one of the most. This is a New York that doesn't exist anymore. When you see them, you know, doing the videos for these songs, and you see her singing on Union City Blue, a ballad of all things. <laughs>
Radiohead. Well, of course, you guys all know that my favorite band, one of my favorite bands is Radiohead. They, they knew. They knew how great that track was because it was one, during their early phase in 1992. It was one of the songs they liked to cover. <laughs> of all things they did, Nobody Does It Better, you know, by Carly Simon. They did Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Campbell. And they did Union City Blue by Blondie, which Tom York has always... You can understand if you know his voice why he has always wanted to sing like Debbie Harry, <laughs> and they demolish it as well. Uh, it, it's such a great track on an album that I really just... There are some things that are weaker here. I think Victor isn't great. But then you even talk about like songs like Atomic, Atomic, which the first time I heard it as a kid, I go, like, oh, that sounds like a Sergio Leone song, doesn't it? And then I found out like when I was in college, like, yeah, the nickname for the song was the Spaghetti Song because it is a spaghetti western. But then again, that's just another epic little set of chords and that's that's Destry because he had the more pop sensibilities than Stein it was yeah. more art rock in that respect but those are all great songs Living in the Real World is another Destry song. This is, as Scott pointed out, this is the last album where Blondie feels like uh, they're like an actual, like in a post-punk live band as opposed to like, you know, hear a bunch of guest horns. Uh, and I love it for that reason. And I love so many of these songs. I think there is just, gosh, you know, I didn't even mention Shayla. I guess I'm going to have to feel regret about that. There's really not a lot to hear that's, that's weak in the slightest. There are three songs unmentioned thus far that I want to talk about very quickly. One is Slow Motion. And this is, you know, this is get happy before get happy. Mm -hmm. right? um, mm -hmm. That that Motown motor, it's, uh, it, uh, you know, if you're more familiar with uh, get happy, it's uh, I stand accused and can't stand up or falling down combined. That is that groove that powers slow motion and foreshadows some of that stuff that Elvis and others would do. But that love of that 60s Motown is totally apparent on slow motion. I think... Well, if you, if you listen to uh, the way they say the word stop in, in slow motion, is exactly like it is in Stop in the Name of Love. Slow motion Another Destry song that is excellent is Accidents Never Happen. That's one of the best songs on the record. And the way that it builds in the mix sort of piece by piece, it has this very shadowy kind of icy feel to it while maintaining uh, maintaining uh, this very quick 
pace. And I love the way toward the end of the song, all those pieces merge together. You have this menagerie of, of sound at the end of Accidents Never Happen. And the other one that really struck me is the one that comes right after Dreaming. Uh, the hardest part, that funk punk groove mm -hmm. and this is another one where it's about that well yeah apparently it is it's it's the story of an armored car um and that chorus that huge chorus just grabs you by the lapels and won't let go until the song is over the hardest part is one of the most aggressively uh, aggressively rock songs of the blondie era and i love it Do you have any final thoughts? Because if you do, there's one last thing I'd like to point out before we move on. Well, I just want to say that, uh, it, again, comparing to Parallel Lines, I think that Parallel Lines is considered, you know, Mike Chapman's uh, supreme on the achievement. But the band was really all here and and really working at, at peak capacity and E to the beat. Um, and it's fun that you can hear everyone too. So in living in the real world, if you want to hear what it was like being with Matt, uh, with Mike Chapman in the studio, um, at the beginning, you hear the one, two, three, four scream. That's him amping up the band and getting them, uh, getting the track started. I mean, the one thing I want to say before I leave behind this era, you know, the, I think, you know, the peak era of Blondie is that, um, to celebrate the release, they played a, a bunch of gigs in England, of course, where they were really popular. Um, Union City Blue, the song I was just rhapsodizing about earlier, was a big hit over there. It was not in America. Uh, and uh, one of the things they did is they played at the Hammersmith Odeon, and they got Robert Fripp, who I last discussed on Fade Away and Radiate, uh, to join with them for a truly singular moment that just has to be mentioned, which is a cover of the song Heroes by David Bowie. Now, People know they listen to our Heroes ep or Bowie episode, or if they just know the song, Fripp is the guy who plays all the amazing guitar on it. He never played it once ever again in the 20th century, except this one time. And it wasn't with David Bowie, it was with Blondie. So it's fantastic to hear him just doing it all over again. And Blondie, somehow, the band knows how to do this song and they do a fantastic job of it. And it's also wonderful to hear Debbie Harry. She's sort of working her way through the lyrics, but by the end, she finds a Blondie way to sing one of the most iconic David Bowie songs of all time. But we can be heroes and What do you say?
That, of course, leads us to, I guess, the auto-American era. Now, the thing is, before we talk about this this weird sort of new and final era of Blondie as a band, as a working band, do we want to mention the most important film of 1981, 1980, American Gigolo? I, I, I think like very few of us can remember where we were or when we first saw this fantastic film about male prostitutes. Uh, but of course, the most important thing about it is Call Me, which is a song that, for whatever reason, is not on any Blondie album, but is yet also known as one of their most famous hits of all time. It's one of the most, I was going to say it's their most iconic. That's probably not right when you have the other number you have, ones. They have a lot of, they have a lot right. of candidates, right? But it is, it is inseparable from, from the band. It's, it's one of the first two, three songs you think of. It is one of my favorite songs. I, I love the energy. I love the drums. I love Clem Burke playing on and Call Me. And it, it is a marriage of uh, style and substance, right? Because you have Debbie Harry working with, uh, Giorgio Moroder, who initially wanted Stevie Nicks to sing the song, and she couldn't because I think she had signed a new record deal that she couldn't get out of. She couldn't do this standalone song. And so they bring in uh, Debbie Harry and Blondie to perform Call Me, which I, I, I must be honest, uh, I know you were joking a bit, but I've not seen an American Gigolo, so I, I can't speak to the uh, You didn't want Richard Gere's no. fantastic <laughs> debut? I mean, it's a wonderful song. No, 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 no. But the song itself, man... Fantastic. And, you know, there's a, there's a shorter radio edit that's about three and a half minutes, but the full song, as it is the disco era of, uh, of getting down on the dance floor, is more than eight minutes long. But it's the kind of song that sort of weaves its way through that time and ends up, you know, deserving that length uh, of song. I, Call Me is one of my favorite Blondie songs. And yes, it's weird that it's not available on an album proper. Got to get the Gigolo soundtrack or a best of compilation or something like that. But it, it is. Everybody, everybody remembers the famous American Gigolo soundtrack, Scott. We discussed that on our best soundtracks episode, right? See, I'm forgetting that too.
bonuses. Exactly. You're going to get it as a bonus track or on the greatest hits. But yeah, it is. It, for me, it's important because it sort of, sort of crystallizes a moment where they're going into a different era. Yeah. This is very much, it's Marauder. Marauder wrote the music and Debbie Harry wrote the lyrics and, and of course made them her own sort of obsessive kind of stalkerish vibe. But uh, that's disco sound and that's going to characterize what comes next on Auto American. Now, I'm going to actually throw it to Hannah first because this is the one that's the weird one. And I'm wondering what you think of the album that has the first song, I guess, that you ever mentioned, you know, that was your introduction to Blondie, The Tide is High. What do you think of how Auto-American contrasts with the rest of the Blondie discography? Well, Rolling Stone, the supreme arbitrator um, of quality says, they gave it... Right. And they give this album a one-star review, um, claiming that they proclaim the death of pop culture um, with this with this album. What Blondie thinks that they are doing, um, you know, Chris Stein and Debbie Harry have both spoken to this, is that um is that they think they're continuing their their punk spirit by continuing to try new things. So they went out to LA um to record this album um and find themselves you know in the in the land of hollywood and um write what debbie calls a soundtrack to an american an imaginary film um and the in the opening instrumental track and right away you know that um this is a obvious departure um from I mean, most of these albums have you know just a big a big jam you know uh right up front um just a big blondie song um, right up front and this doesn't have any um lyrics at all it has debbie these people uh, think they are art rockers god (laughs) yeah i know it has debbie like doing some weird monologue based on the desire for total mobility and the serious physical pursuit of religious freedom the auto drove mankind further than the wheel and in remote areas even today is forbidden as a device too suspect for human conveyance. This articulate conception has only brought us all more of the same. Thoughtlessly locked into phase two gridlock, keyed up on its rims and abandoned on the expressway. And actually segs into uh, a really great opening um, line. And I guess it's a second track, but you know, the opening track um, in, in live it up. Uh, yeah. Which is that, which is that second track and then goes into uh, uh Hollywood homage with here's looking at you with its Casablanca reference. And then we're at uh, then we're at the, the tide is high uh, cover. So um, and the, and actually the Hollywood and cinema plays keep going because Darth Vader is in the music video for uh, The Tide is High. Uh, and the next track is... Uh, it's got to be one of the more ambitious crossovers of the 1980s. I'll point that out. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, like the, MC, the, the MCU. The, this is before its time. Yeah. Blondie and Darth. And a charming couple. And yeah, the next track, uh, I'm going to keep going. The next one is um, from the film The Loaf. Uh, and uh, well, I want to I save the, what, some of the big songs for afterward. But I see this one as just an album, uh, a soundtrack album, an album that uh, they were 
they were playing with the idea of doing a, a full uh a full-on art record um and i don't think it's successful all the way through um that i did the second half of the album kind of well after after rapture um uh, which we'll talk about um i'm sure in a minute um it really um there's there's some cute and fun stuff but it doesn't really um hang together but the original concept is clear in the in the first part of the album and if you listen to it you know and kind of try to listen to it like in in a narrative way as their blondie goes to la album it's very interesting (laughs) uh i i want to read a little from that rolling stone review because it's 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 not quite roger ebert's review of north but uh blondie's auto american is a terrible album but it's bad in such an arcane, high-toned way that listening to it is perversely <laughs> fascinating. After Parallel Lines gave Chris Stein a carte blanche, it was only a matter of time until he started living out his fantasies of himself as a deep thinker. Since he could always be counted on to hedge his bets, however, he cannily managed to sustain the illusion that he still cared about rock and roll on Eat to the Beat. That illusion is surely dead now, and Stein is no longer depriving the world of his genius because auto American is his LP all the way. That's I mean, rough. Do you, do, do you agree or disagree is my first question. I, I largely agree. No, it's not a, it's not uh it's, is it a terrible album? It's not a good album. It is not a good album and it's not a good album in ways that it, it shouldn't fail based on the pedigree of the band. So live it up, which is the second, song on the album should be a slam dunk, right? This is what Blondie mm-hmm. ha- does and has done the past couple of records. And I hear it and it is the most pedestrian rock disco crossover song you could imagine. There's nothing unique about it. There's nothing Blondie about it. fourth time remember the jeff remember the rilo kylie album under the black light where they yes, try to the essentially hate the, the, their, their final failed record yeah, their attempt it, at crossover success right but it, it's they, they sort of they just try to sort of sweep in the, these sounds these sort of disco late 70s trash sounds this song sounds like what they were trying to do to sort of glom on to the movement not being part of it at the time live it up is a totally sounds like them imitating themselves right it's, right it's, it's they're, they're, totally they're trend chasing right. themselves in a weird way yeah and it I, I, there's not a lot here you know what made them special and i guess i'm echoing part of the rolling stone review a bit here but the things that made them special aren't here that that humor mm-hmm. that lightheartedness uh the, the, of the the first album and part of the second album that's not really here in any way 
some of the energy is missing. You have these these crooning songs, these sort of Tin Pan Alley songs like Faces and Here's Looking at You, the 1920s sort of pop song that Debbie Harry Humphrey sings. Bogart. It's Humphrey yeah, Bogart. It's Casablanca. It's... Here's Looking at You, kid. I mean, it's, it's exactly what it's trying to be. It, okay, well, I have a thesis. Continue your thought and then I'll, I will respond. And even Debbie Harry's vocals are not as, as dynamic as they have been previously. Listen to Angels on the Balcony, which is not a bad song. But she's one, yeah. she's flat. It's the, it's the 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 the, the dyn, uh, It's not dynamic, right? It, there are not the highs and lows of of past albums, and I don't mean highs as good as good and bad, but sort of that that elasticity between songs and among the songs. It's not here. The there dynamics, are, right? yeah, the, exactly. Dynamics. Very few things that stick out. The door swings open and it's cold outside. Run and hide. Run and hide. They can still see you. I turn to Jimmy Destry again to save us a bit. I think Do the Dark, which is a four on the floor disco rock song, is one of the better ones here. It's got the slinky, dancey moves, but they pull it off well. Even something that, that, that starts pretty well, like T-Birds, devolves into another spoken word section by Debbie Harry, where she's not singing at all. She's just reading these things that uh, that Chris Stein has written for her to say. It's all very odd and I don't think it works very well. And if it's not a terrible album, it certainly isn't a very good album. Yeah. Well, and even I with get, The Tide is High, she doesn't do what she did with, you know, hanging on the telephone. It's like, it's a it's a good cover, but sorry to betray, you know, my first contact with, with Blondie, but it's, it's the one that if you, you know, that if you didn't know it was a cover, like you might guess out of all of their covers. Hottest take of all is that I think this is a weaker album than The Hunter. Uh, and I guess <laughs> no, I know because there's some things on The Hunter I genuinely like. Actually, there's some surprising little like ones hidden over there. Um, I get it. I like the. I don't mind. As I said, I was like I like art rock, but this is not the kind of art rock I was thinking of. And so there are songs on here that I really genuinely think are good. Like Go Through It. It's the last song on side one. Uh, and then there are horns. Why are there horns here? This is not the Blondie sound. And, and I, I'm 
I'm not a hidebound man. I do not mind it when groups evolve their sounds, but sometimes it feels right and then sometimes it doesn't quite feel right at all. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't feel right here is there's nothing elemental about it. The band itself was fracturing. And so because they were all going their separate ways, uh, sort of, you know, in terms of being a tight core and a unit, uh, all of the stuff feels kind of glued on and tacked on. And then you get, yeah, Chris Stein and Debbie Harry's emotional trip. The soundtrack doesn't really quite work. I like the tide is high. I actually do like live it up. Scott says it was annoying. I even like some of the goofy pastiche stuff. Like here's looking at you. And I know that's the kind of thing you are tailor made to loathe (laughs) Scott, but it's a shan, it's a Shantou song. And I, and I like Debbie Harry because I like her personality. I like the way she sings it. Um, But you're right. the, The vocal performances aren't as strong here. And I guess this kind of, Brings us to, I guess, the hot point, the big controversial track. What do you guys think of Rapture? Because if I were to tell you, and I did this the other you know, other month on Twitter, it was funny. I was like, somebody, somebody, like, what are these random like people? Just you know, like these these clickbait challenges. It's like, name a white person who has had a significant influence on the history of hip hop. <laughs> and I was just like, well, guess what? It's Debbie Harry. In Rapture by Blondie in 1980. And I'm right because this is like uh, the thing about Rapture is, of course, okay, first of all, the name is obviously a pun on rap. It's Rapture. The song itself, I like. I don't like the rap. Right. I think a rap is it's the worst so part. Silly. It, of course it is. I, it's, it's never been my favorite part of it at all, you know? And I mean, it's, it's you know, musically, it's a Stein song and. I like that part of it because, you know, I like his art rock stuff. I like the fact that it was a hit and that it was path breaking. But no, I have to admit, I've never loved it as a single. It's from the person who says he loves the attack of the giant ants. You don't <laughs> a, like I'm eating a, guitars now? What's wrong with eating guitars? Eating the guitars, eating cars. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't understand. And bars. Yeah, and many things. Exactly. You know what? Like your flow's got to make some rational sense, lady. That's all I'm asking you. It's all, you know, that's what it comes down to. the fact that she delivers it as like the whitest human being on the planet i just think it's just you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense but it is certainly a a landmark of popular music and here's right. the thing that was a huge hit single yep. in 1980 or was it 80 81 i can't even remember uh 81 um, would have been a single yeah 81 it was, it was 80 but i think it got became a hit in 81 um and it was kind of one of the things that helped mainstream rap music for uh, a, a white audience because you know hey who as i just said who could be whiter than blondie so it was a virtuous act i've just never cared for the track i agree i think that it's remembered more so as being that sort of cultural touch point in which there was a bit of a bit of crossover and then also a bit of, mm-hmm. of pop success with this 
art form that had not found traction yet, but what what but would very soon. And so it's remembered. Let's bring you back to the fusion aspect of Blondie. Is that they did have yeah. their ears to the ground of things that were like bubbling, like yeah. up, and they were not they were not detached in that way. Yeah, but that rap part is yeah by far the worst part of the song. It's not. It's a decent groove and it's a pretty good song. And when it gets to that point, I'm I'm tuning out. I'm gone. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to hear it. And yet that's the reason why, or one of the main reasons why it is so remembered because of the effect it had on, on future songs, future songwriters. All right, you guys. I, I, I think unless anybody has any final thoughts on Auto-American, it's time for one of the two of you to please, <laughs> and I beg of you, please explain to me, perhaps Hannah might know, why is Debbie Harry wearing that ridiculous wig on the cover of 1982's The Hunter, the final Blondie album of their main era career? Well, Debbie Harry admits that this one, this cover didn't turn out so good. <laughs> they were, I don't know how to, she doesn't explain in detail, but she says originally they were all supposed to be animals on the cover, which, you know, I would question that idea in the first place, but that was the concept and it didn't work out. And you end up with this hybrid airbrush thing where Debbie Harry is wearing whatever she's wearing and um, looks like something much worse than peroxide has happened to her hair. Uh, And then everybody else is just, just kind of there. Uh, And that seems like a pretty good metaphor for what's going on with this album. It is a rare, I guess, no, I shouldn't say it's rare, but it is one of the absolute instances in which you can judge a book by its cover. Like, looking at The Hunter and the cover, you know you're in trouble. Like, there is no way. What happened? There is no rational way that this album is going to turn out well when the decision making ended up with this on the cover of the album. And uh, I guess we'll find out what Jeff says here momentarily because he was going to make a case or at least some case, that it's better than auto-American. Some case, right? by the way. I'm not going to be like a hot take guy here. But I got some thoughts. There's some real bad stuff here. Um, I, I, I think it's worse. I, I will I will say I think it is worse than auto-American uh, in a number of ways. Look, t- 12 songs, 53 minutes for a, a band that began by playing, you know, three-minute new wave pop hits. Again, big, big red alarm bell going off there's going There's to be problems there. right red yeah big red flag um again there's a loose concept here they said in the press release announcing the album about hunting for one's own mount everest and we only could wish that in fact blondie's mount everest was writing good songs and putting out a quality album they didn't reach the mount everest here on the hunter orchid club starts six minutes of tribal drumming with very kind of edit, actually Death Valley, if you think about it, yeah. like the, the lowlands, whatever the lowest place on planet Earth is that's below <laughs> that's sea whatever. level, like the Mariana Trench, yeah, Mary, no, no, below, no, but but still above ground, you know, like, uh, yeah, it's not quite that bad, but uh, anyways, yeah, uh, you hear, you know, you used to hear them predict or or sort of foretell future success and now you hear them trying to grab past success island of lost souls is an attempt to redo the tide is high you know dragonfly has this sci-fi theme about a race in space and you hear that going back to like the 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 ant song from the first from the first record They, they sort of tried this previously um for your eyes only they're asked to write a song for the james bond film and got rejected 
And the filmmaker said, why don't you sing this other song that was written by, um, I think, Mike Conti, who wrote the Rocky theme. And they, were, they, they didn't want to do it. And so they just put it on this album. And it's a bad song. You, can t- you, you know why they rejected the song for the, for the movie. It's not great. Uh, War Child is actually a single, the second single from this record. And it's pretty bad. Uh, lyrics mentioning the PLO and Khmer Rouge, which again, they, they, they had some odd lyrics or, or odd references in the past. But it especially doesn't work here. Um, even Dance Away, a Destry song, which goes back to that sort of Motown feel, doesn't work. Why? Because they're so out of tune. They're so out of place that even this sort of limps along at three quarters speed. Like it, it should be faster. It should have more energy. It should be more blondy. And it just sort of limps along to the end. There's very little here, uh, to recommend, on um, the Hunter and the band was fracturing and the old chrysalis, they owed chrysalis a record, which this is what it ended up being. And it's no surprise that it was the end of the line because it's a dead end. It's a dead end because these songs either look back to something that they were unable to capture anymore, or they were trying to move part of Auto American forward, like I think Orchid Club does. And that's no place for this band to go. half a cheer for dance away because i like the old you know new york nostalgia stuff and just the way they sing brooklyn queens expressway is really great uh but i don't even need the full song you know the rest of the song is just kind of kind of filler um there's there's interesting um factoids about the song english boys um a song that i also don't feel like i need to listen to uh, appreciate but um it's said that john lennon played auto american in the months before his death in 1980 and uh someone has to stand up for the tide is high as well because we just you know disparaged it and he really liked the tide is high apparently his son says and so this um english voice was um an homage to him and the beatles problem with the hunter i mean other than what everyone else already mentioned is that you're right. They're going into stuff that almost sounds too much like soundtrack music. I said it to you guys right on the show, uh, right before the show. Island of Lost Souls, I mean, it literally sounds like the theme music from this game I used to play on the computer as a kid <laughs> called the, the Curse of Monkey Island. I mean, there, there may be some listeners who played like the Monkey Island series about a hapless pirate in the Caribbean. It's like a comedy game and set in the 18th century. And like... This would be great background music as Guybrush Threepwood is like negotiating with salty pirates. But it's not actual music music. It's not music you want to hear. And that's the problem with the latter era of Blondie's career. Where did he go?
and perhaps I am incorrect when I say the Hunter is a better record than Auto America. <laughs> but the reason I the reason I have a certain fondness for it though is one song in particular, which is like the one song on this record that I actually think is like a, one of the bigger sleepers of their career. Hides here near the end of it. It's can I find the right words to say? Uh, it's it's one of their late greats, and it sounds like a kind of eat to the beat era. Blondie, uh, kind of a post-punk track. I love it. I love her performance on it. And it, it's got one of those melodies that sort of reminds you of what it is they do. And of course, tellingly, it's a Destry song because I think he was the guy at this point who was you know, still trying to like come up with something that was sort of traditionally more on the pop rock scale. Um, and the rest of it is is a bit of a mess you sort of see why they had to end or why the end was overdetermined for them. Although, as it turns out, they didn't end technically for this reason at all. But I guess we'll get to that in a moment. hasn't already been said except uh it is it is one heck of a wig i mean that's some very (laughs) high hair i mean it just goes all the way up i mean it's it's as high as like the bassist i think it's amazing it is in fact the end of the line for this version of blondie and this is perhaps where hannah can clue us into some of the uh details and history but chris stein was having some serious health problems along uh around this time debbie harry took some time off to to care for him and skin condition a very strange skin condition which if you watch blondie videos you can see it like on them like um it's kind of his face looks a little like sandpapery um i can only imagine what it must be like to suffer from that it's just like one of those things it's like unfortunate but obviously you know he he seems to have worked through it something we haven't talked talked about yet that I want to give both of you the opportunity to do before we sort of run into the reunion stuff toward the nineties is what was missed. The opportunities missed in the eighties, because as we mentioned earlier in the program, there's a lot of the music and the image and all of this that foretells both music and and pop culture in the eighties. And there's one particular artist that perhaps was able to uh, take advantage of the fact that Debbie Harry was unavailable to sing and to produce solo albums during the early part of the 80s. We can tell you one for exa- for a perfect example because you can hear it on The Hunter. And actually, I, I regret not mentioning it. It's, it's Dragonfly, which you talked about. But that sound, okay, the sound is kind of like adequate enough Duran Duran style 80s pop. But when you hear Debbie Harry singing on top of it, which you immediately realize when you listen to Dragonfly, I was like, oh, wait, that's Madonna. That's that's borderline era Madonna coming on. You know, of course, I think that was 81 for her. So she was already picking up the sound. 
but you hear everything that Madonna was going to do and weaponize and simplify. And also you give her, give Madonna her own credit, you know, decent songwriter, worked with the right producers, knew her thing, knew her area, knew her niche. She drilled down to it and became one of the most iconic stars of the eighties, but let there never be any doubt whatsoever that Madonna's original moves were all copped from Debbie Harry and Blondie. John Waters says Debbie blinked for two minutes while she was looking after Chris um, in the disease that we talked about. And Madonna stole her career. You know, Madonna fully brings like disco into into pop and rock and pop onto um, the dance floor. And, you know, some of it is just uh, it's just really unfortunate timing because of what we, we talked about. The band breaks up in, you know, late 82, like a few few months, six months after after this album. And then. You know, they're just like completely off the scene. Debbie Harry, everybody's trying to do a solo album, um, you know, and and make it work um, and keep the image alive through, you know, Debbie Harry's doing doing film roles and that sort of thing as well, which she'd been doing for a while. But, you know, she leans more into the, into that stuff. And then they're also they're hugely in debt uh, things. Uh, the punk lifestyle is not maybe is not the best at uh, building and sustaining uh, a long musical. It's not, con- it's not conducive to sensible investment. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Possibly not. I will also point out that uh, Debbie Harry hosted an episode of SNL Saturday Night Live in the infamous awful season six of the show. And uh, she was, in fact, the most talented female performer on the show all season long, including the cast members. So that it's another feather in her cap. She was excellent as a oh, wait, 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 wait. not not Anne Risley. Anne Risley was not as funny or as good of a performer as Debbie Harry. That I guarantee the way, you. I'm going to just throw a random plug in here. Scott does have a side project where he does every episode, every season rather, of Saturday Night Live with Christian Schneider, who's another friend of the shows. Uh, and and they're up to I go season eight or nine right now. Season eight just released um, a couple and, days uh, ago. Yep. And what's the formal title of the podcast? It's, it's called, called thank you, Jeff. It's called Wasn't That Special? You know, like the church lady says, but is, we're looking it, back. Isn't so that special? Wasn't that, isn't that special? Been? 50 years of SNL. You guys are up to season eight now. The season six episode I just listened to yesterday, it is a hoot and a half of a disaster season. And yeah, Debbie Harry did actually guest on that one. Eesh disaster but yes had to get that one in there before we talk about sort of the interregnum period of blondie yeah and the 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 uh the cast member of this show who knows most about this is hannah because jeff and i are very yeah. arm's length at best with the reunion efforts other than i distinctly remember at my college radio station the the single the cd single of maria coming in via the u.s postal service new single from blondie and we played it and i remember thinking hey this is actually pretty good uh and that song did very well both uh, in the u.s but even better in uh in foreign markets so there was a, a good second act and a good success story for blondie hannah knows a b- little bit more about that Ooh. 
Kind of brings them full circle. Uh, apparently, there was something about the the Brits that they they were in early and held on for longer. But this was Maria was a big um, supposed to be a big comeback single for them. It was a big single, and um, it's another Destry song and just a uh, just a classic, sweet high school yearning. You know, uh, for my for this virginal girl um she moves like she don't care walking on imported air um it's also doing blondie things that we've been talking about uh, just doing some self-referencing but in the way that works so that you know the line that i just read is, is a reference to uh walk like me from auto american um and it just it it's got these lovely bells um and that sound like you know church sounds and uh is just a, it's full of charming song and it's really it's it's a jam i mean i've driven around like screaming it uh <laughs> to the radio with my two-year-old like staring at me in the back seat so uh <laughs> it's a good one i consider it kind of their their swan song i mean you listen to um the rest of the album just it doesn't hang around it there are you know band members in and out and um and all around uh, things with the band, unfortunately, just really uh, explode in, in very in very public ways. Um, you know, they're um, later, uh, seven years later, after after No Exit, where this single came out, they um, are uh, being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2006. And two of the members show up and make a whole scene about how they've been cut up, cut out of the band. And, you know, this t- makes like the top 10, you know, worst moments at the Rock and Roll, at the Hall of Fame, <laughs> whatever. Um, and so it's, it's really, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Um, they that same year, uh, their era kind of ends um, with like we talked about CBGBs before it closes the same year, and so this movement is just really um, it's over. So um, they reunite, um, and we can uh, or after you know after their reunion, um, they put out a couple more albums, and um, the the one that most like. Uh, epitomizes for me uh, where Blondie ends up is uh, Pollinator from 2017, which is uh, connected to Debbie Harry's bee activism. Um, she uh, gets really into, uh, you know, environmental stuff and um, rightly is very concerned about, uh, about the bees. And so she starts performing with little bees uh, like uh, headbands with like little bees on them. It's actually very cute. Um, doesn't it's, it's good music. About the bees? But it's 
please. And then she gives you her little, you know, her little eyebrow thing and her flirtatious mm-hmm. smirk. It's still, it's very cute. So it's on the cover of Pollinator, but that doesn't mean that you can actually listen to Pollinator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think she I'm, actually I'm also really... stole that from SNL, you know, the bees from the early, yeah. early seasons. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Sure. Yeah, I actually do love Marie, but I I, I don't like uh, the later Blondie albums. And, and, and you know, this is the sort of you know, sometimes the pitfall of a Political Beats episode where you talk about like, well, these bands, these legacy acts, they get together. Like, you know, remember when we did the Pixies? We didn't want to talk about the Pixies reunion album for crying out loud. It was definitely, I mean, listen, their last two albums, just like Blondie, their last two albums weren't that great. The reunion was not bound to be that wonderful either. So I, I give these the allowance they're deserved. And I, and I really don't really, you know, pay too much attention to them myself. I wish I had something more intelligent to say, but I'm a stupid man. The only thing I'll say, bringing it back somewhat full circle from the beginning is, I mentioned the influence that perhaps Blondie had on a band called the B-52s. And when Maria yeah. was released, which was Blondie's comeback, the B-52s also were doing a, a mini comeback with a greatest hits album. And they had a single out called Debbie. And it's a flamethrowing single. It's a great song. And I, I thought it was always weird, ironic, coincidental that you had both Blondie and the B-52s making a comeback at around the same time with singles named after female names that both were very, very good. So Maria, very good. Debbie from the B-52s, also very, very good. And I think we've reached that part of the program. Where we, we have. your hosts, give you the two albums from Blondie you should own and the five songs from Blondie you absolutely need to hear. <laughs> Our guest always takes the floor first, Hannah Rowan, managing editor of Modern Age. Your two albums and five songs, please. You have to buy The Hunter. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Eat to the Beat is... That, that has to be my top one. Uh and then uh, Parallel Lines, um, because if you haven't listened to it, you don't know Blondie. And my five songs, I avoided all the big singles. So here we go. We have Ripper to Shreds from Blondie, the first album. We have Picture This. We have Eat to the Beat because of the peanut butter. Uh, we have Die Young, Stay Pretty. That's really my song. And then we have Maria. All right, my two albums are the same two albums, in fact. I also recommend Parallel Lines and Eat to the Beat as the two Blondie albums that you should own. Songs, uh, just one that is the same as Hannah's list. I also have Rip Her to Shreds from the first album on my list. The other four, and I also avoided the big hits. They were number one hits, and Blondie's a band that I think will benefit from people hearing some of the songs that didn't necessarily make the radio so I didn't have the nerve to say no from the second album. I think it's the best one on that record. Hanging on a Telephone, which might be the most Blondie song, even though it was not written by Blondie. Uh, Accidents Never Happen. And then the last one, which I talked about just briefly and do recommend highly, uh, The Hardest Part. Great song from Eat to the Beat. Those are my five Blondie songs you should hear. Jeff, over to you. This is so dang Hard. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to be a little different from the two of you. I'm going to say my two favorite albums are the debut. Blondie, you don't seem to understand its appeal, Scott, but I do. I love that. And I also think Parallel Lines, because who are we kidding? It is obviously their peak achievement. And then I'm going to do a thing where I'm going to try to name my five songs 
that are not from those two albums. So I'm going to just take ones that aren't from there. So I think the first one I'm going to have to start with, oh, Scott, thanks for nothing, because I didn't have the nerve to say no was on my list, <laughs> but now it's not. Uh, now I guess I'm going to go with Bermuda Triangle Blues, Flight 45 from Plastic Letters. Uh, a Detroit 442, another one from Plastic Letters, I have to take. I really love that. Then from E to the Beat, You've got Dreaming. That's the greatest Blondie song of all time. Union City Blue is the most underrated Blondie song of all time. And then I'm going to be that weird guy and actually pick one from The Hunter. And I'm going to say, can I find the right words from the say is the last Blondie song of all time. And it's also one of those that hides away on the later songs, later albums. And it's really wonderful. And then finally, you know, because I'm annoying and I'm a host and I have host prerogative, I'm going to just actually insert a sixth one and say like... Make a point to hear their live version of Heroes uh, with Robert Fripp from early 1980. It's just such a beautiful moment where, like, finally, Blonde, Debbie Harry and Blondie find their feeding, their footing in the song, and Robert Fripp is soloing atop them. And it's one of the most beautiful renditions of a song that, you know, again, really didn't get a lot of performances during the 80s. And uh, Blondie somehow managed to, to give it a voice. Beautiful. Political Beats look at the music and career of Blondie. We thank Hannah Rowan for making this happen, an episode we were looking forward to doing for quite a long time. She's managing editor of Modern Age. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us to talk Blondie. Thank you. Our pleasure to have you along for the ride. Some very fun stuff could be around the corner for Political Beats. I think we already have um, our November artist and then december comes around that's our ask us anything month on the exclusive content side of things so lots of fun we still have a patreon episode to record for this month that's correct we have to do that very soon so uh, find jeff on uh, twitter or x at esoteric cd i'm there at scott bertram don't forget patreon.com slash political beats if you want those exclusive content episodes Go there and support the show. Entry-level, mid-level, and our upper-level best friends help the show stay ad-free and support Political Beats at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Subscribe to the feed for new episodes or go to nationalreview.com. Click on podcast there to find all the fine NR shows. 
Find us on Facebook, look for us on X or Twitter at Political Underscore Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.